if you're not a regular attender here, you don't know this, but we've been letting the staff preach, uh, and we got a couple more guys coming up to preach in, in the next few weeks, but I haven't preached in the last two weeks. If you know me and you know what that means, it means buckle up and hang on, because I'm kind of wired up today. Uh, I'll try to get there pretty quick. We're doing a series through the book of Galatians right now. We're up to chapter 4, the second part. Uh, if you got the handout notes, you might want to look at that real quick, and let me give you a few uh, background points. But Galatians was written to solve a theological predicament of the church of the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a region of area similar, like state of Oklahoma, uh, a region there. Several churches there. This is written to all of them, and the problem, the predicament, was this: they had been persuaded by legalists called Judaizers that they needed to adhere to the law to be saved. Now, I'll look at that today in the text here, but Paul writes this, one of his first letters to address this issue, and we are not saved because we adhere to the law. We are saved because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when we are saved... Part of that happens. Jesus said it this way, you must be born again. That means you, you obtain a new point of reference in life, a new vantage point in life. Everything changes. Paul says when you are in Christ, everything is different. Everything becomes new. And so we adhere to laws and the things that need to be there, not out of compulsion, but out of gratitude. So from the outside, it may look kind of similar, but there's a big difference. How many of you have ever had to do something because it was required of you, but you weren't really that thrilled about it, and if you wouldn't have had to do it, you probably wouldn't have done it. I'm thinking about paying taxes. You know, when you look at the money that, you, that, that comes in, you know, here's what we always do. We'd see how much money comes out of our checks or whatever, and we look at that thing and we think, man, what I could do with that money. But we also need to realize that that money they take from us, which may not be used as, as judiciously as we would like, but yet it does provide for us police departments, governance, roads, I mean, so many other things down the list. So it's really not that bad of a deal. But given the preference, I would keep the money in my pocket if I could. It's because we give it under compulsion. We have to. And you know that if you don't do that, you're going to get a phone call or a letter probably initially from this organization called the IRS. And they don't play very nice. So you pay your taxes. How many of you know that when you're buying something for someone you love, maybe unfortunately even more true, when you're buying something for yourself that you love, <laughs> spending that money is not a hardship, but it's a joy. And we'll say things, can you believe I got this only for this amount of money? Paul is saying to us, we do not serve God because we have to, but we serve from an attitude of love for him. Now, what's happening to the Galatian church is they are experiencing an attempted identity theft. 
When you read through the book of Galatians, the first two chapters give validation to the gospel of grace. It says this is true, and here's why it defends it. Chapters 3 and 4 that we're looking at today, the second part of 4, gives explanation. We would call that in the church world theology or doctrine. And then the last two chapters give application. So as you look at this, I just want us to see this morning what it is that Paul is talking about to the Galatians. And he's talking about... He's talking about spiritual identity theft. You don't raise your hand for this because it'd probably make all of us frustrated to have to acknowledge it, but, but they say that in 2020, there were over 1.4 million identity theft complaints in the U.S. I've had my identity compromised a couple of times, and um, it's very frustrating. It takes a lot of work to get through all that. Mine wasn't to great depth, thank God, but still, it's a big deal. They say that in 2020, American consumers lost $56 billion due to identity theft. 86% of global consumers were either victims of identity theft, credit, debit card fraud, or a data breach in 2020. It happened to a lot of us. But the issue we're looking at today is not about identity theft of your financial status. It's about identity theft of the spiritual opportunity to be a child of God. Now, when you look at this story that we're going to look at today, uh, we recognize that, that, that Paul gives us an allegory. We're going to be looking in just a moment here at Galatians 4, 21 through 31. I'm actually going to back up a few verses. But Paul gives an illustration the correct word for it is allegory to make his point about the necessity of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. You could call this section in Galatians chapter 4 an old story with a new meaning. He takes something they all know in Jewish culture and he brings new meaning to it. Now, school starts in about how many days? 11 days, something like that? Close? I'm surprised kids and teachers don't know how many days they have left, but it's somewhere in that range. So this definition comes from thoughtco.com, and it says, an allegory is the rhetorical strategy of extending a metaphor through an entire narrative. I'm going to break it down. Don't get lost in the weeds here. Thus, it's a longer description, illustration, analogy, or comparison than a simile or metaphor would be. Y'all remember simile, right? Simile says, I'm as hungry as a bear or like, or one of those comparative type words. Uh, metaphor would just simply say, he's a grumpy bear. It's a little more strong indication. An allegory goes beyond just the sentence to give you a story that all, has all these things pointed in. And the reason I'm giving you that word, that's the word that Paul uses in this text we're going to look at today. In the Greek language, he uses the word for allegory. In an allegory, any object, persons, and actions in the text are part of the larger metaphor and equate to meaning that lie outside of the text. Allegories contain a lot of symbolism. So Paul uses the story out of Genesis 12 through 21. Key players are Hagar and Sarah. They're kind of compared to each other. Ishmael and Isaac, and I'll go over who these people are in a minute. Hagar is the servant, and Sarah is the free woman. 
Ishmael is born according to the flesh. Isaac is born according to the promise. Hagar is seen as the one who, who originates from Mount Sinai, and that's where the Ten Commandments come from and that sort of thing, whereas Sarah represents the Jerusalem yet to come, which represents heaven for us. One is in bondage, one is in freedom, one is after the flesh, one is after the spirit, and uh, the, the controlling people here are either follow the Judaizers or follow Paul. So Paul gives his story and he warns against the consequences of trying to be justified by adherence to the law apart from the grace. So I'm going to give you the points. We'll read a little bit of the text as we go through. Before I get even to verse 21, let me back up just a little bit and go to verse 17. And it says this. Paul is saying the Judaizers are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. In other words, he says, they're coming after you hard. They're giving you the song and dance. They're making the big pitch so you'll join in on their way of thinking. And then their goal is that you'll become zealous for them in recruiting other people to follow that same pathway. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. So in other words, he says there, there are two things important about zeal. One is your motivation, that you're doing it for the right reason. And second is consistency, so you're not hypocritical with it. Have you ever seen somebody get really excited about something when someone's around, but they really weren't that excited about it? It was just putting on a front. He says, don't do that. And he says, and don't get... Don't get excited for the wrong reason. Let your zeal be for the right purpose and let it be continued. My dear children, for who I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Now, verse 21, he says this. Tell me, <clears throat> you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So the Judaizers were saying, we want to be under the law. That's the way that we're going to become right with God, by doing all of the regulations, by adhering to every principle and making sure we walk a perfectly straight line, never make a mistake. You don't have to raise your hand on this, but it would be universal if you're honest. How many of you are glad that in this past week, there wasn't a camera on you 24-7 that was going to be played today? Maybe just the special moments. How many of you are glad that's not happening? We all are. There was a time that, that maybe this last week you lost your temper. There was a time you had a thought that was inappropriate. There was a, these things happen because we're human. And so we have to make this devotion to God and let the Holy Spirit work in us to continue to strengthen us and conform us to the image of Jesus. But if we had to get to heaven because we're perfectly good 24-7, 365 days a year, every day of your life. How many of you would go, let me pray really hard, get everything right, and then God just take me home because there's no chance that I'm going to make it till Tuesday. Are you with me? So they're going, we're going to get there by following the law. And Paul says to them, a little bit of sarcasm here, but he says, okay, tell me. Explain it to me, guys. You who desire to be on that path, 
Have you not read the law clear enough to realize that there's no one righteous, not even one? Do you not realize that if you mess up in one spot, you get an F? How many of you are glad that the, the, when you were in school, that the requirement for passing wasn't 100%? How many of you glad that D's count for something even? Come on, people, help me out. And growing up, different places, different schools, they had different grading systems. I remember one place I lived, an A was 95 and above. Then I went and moved somewhere else, a little older or whatever, and it was 90 to 100. I'm like, hallelujah. Because I'm thinking every grade's 10 points, 90, 80, 70. I think I can make this work. What if, what if for you to get a passing grade, there was no like grading system, it was pass or fail, and to pass, you can't miss one thing. You can't misspell one word. You can't miscalculate one equation. You can't make one error at all. If you do, it's failure. How many of you want to go to that college next year? Paul says that's what the law was like. We had no chance. And when people desire to be under the law, what they are doing is they're depending upon comparison for their basis of justification. They're looking around and they're going, I'm better than most people. I guess according to the curve, I'm in the top 50%, so I pass. How many of you glad that when you go to your doctor, they don't have your doctor's grades for all of his school up there. And how many of you went in and you saw that your doctor passed by one point, you might be looking for a new doctor. See, comparison no longer says that I am depending on God. Comparison's now I'm depending on myself to be better and there's somebody I can take out right there, and there's someone that I think I can do better than. And you know what? I look around, I think I'm okay. Have you ever noticed we're trying to compare ourselves with others? We always find the worst people in the community to compare to. You know, we, we never get the good people. Well, that's it. That person over there, they, they're cheaters and they're liars and they're drunkards and, you know, they're immoral. And yeah, compared to them, I'm pretty good. Well, duh. That's really what you're going to brag about? What about to the best person, the most generous, the most kind, the most wonderful person? How do you compare there? Well, I just got to get above the 50% margin. I'm going to be okay. That's the legalistic mindset that says compare to others. But the truth is the law requires perfection, and no one can ever be justified by keeping the law completely because we all fail at some point. Second thing I want you to see today is don't base your identity in your ability to obey the law. In 4, 22 through 27, Paul says, it is written that Abraham had two sons. By the way, Abraham had, I think, five more sons later on after Sarah died. Uh, so, so some people, it, it's amazing how people want to argue with the Bible and say, well, it says he has two sons, but he really had seven. See, there's an error right there. No, 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 just stop. Okay, my parents have three boys. If my mom or dad were telling a story about my two older brothers, who are, if y'all are watching on TV, way older than me, 
I can only say that because they are. They're 14 and 12 years older than me. And so if they're telling a story, but before I got born, they, they might say, we have two sons, and, you know, and they're telling a story about whatever. And so he goes, well, no, you have three. Well, yeah, but I'm telling the story about the two sons. The story is not saying he only had two sons. It's telling about the two sons that are in the point of conflict here. So it's not a, it's not a mess up. It's all good. People who argue over stuff like that are just nonsensical, just to be real blunt. Uh, it is written that Abraham had two sons, and by a slave, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Now, we don't know some of these things exactly. Uh, her name was Hagar. From what I can read, what I could find out in studying, we believe that Hagar, she was definitely a younger woman. That would be, that would be probably the consensus. And she may have been as, as young as around 20 years old. At the time um, that she bore a son for Abraham, he would have been at that time about, uh, about 85. About, yeah, about 85. So Sarah at that time would have been about 75 when this is all going on with, with Ishmael being born. And Sarah looks at it, and I'll, I'll talk more about it in just a minute. But Sarah looks at it and goes, you know, I'm, I'm 85 or I'm 75, and there's no way I'm going to have a child. How many of you go, thank God, when you're 75, please, no children at that point. Grandchildren come and they go. That's an awesome thing. But at 75, you don't need to have your own. Just, just, I'm just saying. He says, one was the free, born of the flesh, while the son of the free one was born through promise. One was the natural way that it happens. One was a supernatural way unexplainable, not normal. And he goes on to say, these may be interpreted, and, and this is in the ESV, allegorically. And that is the exact word that it is in the Greek language. It's the right word completely. And I told you what an allegory was earlier, a story that has comparative and that goes back and forth of illustration. These women are two covenants. Now, covenant is a a commitment made between two people or primarily in Scripture between God and man, and the covenant is totally binding. It's more than a contract because contracts normally have provision of how you get out of them. Covenants are intended to be for life. By the way, when you get married, it's designed by God to be a marriage covenant. Now, I say that primarily to people who aren't married yet. I know there are people in the room that you were married and you got a divorce, and, and that's tragic, and, and there's no guilt being heaped upon you because of that. I think we all realize that divorce is ugly, messy, and, and difficult. God sees that, and he says, make a covenant that's going to last for life. The problem is sometimes we enter covenants with people that, that maybe we didn't know the whole picture, or we don't see the whole thing, or maybe we just didn't think happens to all of us at some point or another. But our covenant with God is what's being talked about here. And God is trustworthy. He says there are two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai, talking about the law, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. It is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So God promised Abraham when he was 75 that he would have 
the sentence like the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. That's pretty big stuff to be talking about. And Sarah was 65 at that point. Unbelievably, at that point, they didn't really laugh about it. They went, well, maybe, who knows? They were people of faith. (laughs) But after 10 years, and and here's a point I want to make real clear to you. I've discovered that often when God gives me a promise, I'm kind of like, all right, way to go, God. Is that check in the mail this week? Am I getting it on Tuesday? You kind of gave me an idea we're going here. Thank you, God. It'll probably happen right now. My favorite book of, of the Gospels is Mark because Mark is the Reader's Digest version. Frequently contains the word immediately. I like that word. Here's what I've discovered in life is that God normally gives us promises that have sometimes years connected to their fulfillment. And what happens if we're not careful when we're waiting for the promise to come? Sometimes we kind of go, you know, maybe I could do this and kind of help God out. Let me just give you a real good word of instruction. God doesn't need your help. He needs your obedience and trust. Now, I'm not saying that we don't take a step sometimes. I'm not saying we don't move in faith. But, but this is not moving in faith. This is actually moving in fear. It's like God gave me a promise. I'm not seeing it happen. So I'm going to take it into my own hands and make this happen. So she came up with the brilliant idea. Why don't you have relations? Why don't you, why don't you have sex with my servant? That's a great idea. Now, I've got to give you this. We don't understand it because we're in a different culture today. This was somewhat culturally accepted at that point in time, ridiculously so, because it never worked out well. Let me just, just say it that clear. And you'll see in this story it didn't work out very well at all between the relationships of siblings at that point in time. And God says that this is a covenant. Here's what's going on. God promised it at 75, Sarah was 65. After 10 years, she decided just to kind of make this thing happen. And here's the point you need to know. Write these words down if you write things in your notes there. You cannot receive the divine promise by human effort. You can't try hard enough to get your way into heaven. You can't improve yourself enough to get there. You must be born again. When, God, when Jesus said that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? I'm an old man. Should I climb, climb back up into my mother's womb? What, what are you talking about? And Jesus said, not born of flesh, but born of spirit. Becoming a child of God. It happens when we open up our heart to the work of the Holy Spirit in us and we receive the gifts of God. Sarah pushes through. Third thing I want to tell you today is this. Depend completely on God's grace for your identity. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. Can somebody say amen? We are children of promise. We are children of Abraham. We are children of God. We have relationship. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. In other words, there was huge conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. 
I didn't do the chart out there. I started, I left it off. I said it. It's in your notes, but I didn't say it. 14 years later, uh, Sarah and Abraham have a son named Isaac. So Ishmael is 14 years older, approximately older than Isaac. And he says they, the older persecutes the younger. That's going to keep happening. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit what the son of the free woman with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we're not showing the slave, but of the free woman. Now, don't divert off the lesson Paul's trying to teach us here, because we can, we can definitely go into talking about uh, human suffering. We can definitely go in and talking about all of the, 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 the hideousness of any kind of slavery, of sex trafficking. All those things are abominable, okay? Put that on the, on the table right out front. But what we're talking about here is when we decide we're going to force things and make them happen, that often the consequence that results from that is so far beyond our comprehension that we had no way of thinking that would be what would happen. Trust God, rest in him, wait on him, act when he tells you to act, but don't get ahead of God. So there's constant strife between the two boys. They're 14 years apart. Story comes out, probably when they, they, they send Hagar and Ishmael off, Ishmael's probably about 17 at the time, and Isaac is about three, and it's already gotten to the point that the 17-year-old is picking on the three-year-old to the point that there are bad mamas. There ain't no, there ain't no mad anything like a mad mama bear. There's mad mamas, there, there's, there's sibling rivalry, there's tension, and it all happened because they tried to get ahead of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the flesh fights against the spirit or wars against the spirit. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus says that you are, or Paul says here, you are a child of spiritual freedom when you depend on grace for your identity. Who are you? I am a child of God by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I belong to the family of God. I'm a child of the king. That's our identity. Who are you? I'm a really good person. Uh -uh, wrong answer. Who are you? I'm in the 51st percentile. So I make it 50 and below, goodbye. Wrong answer. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> Wrong answer. I am a child of God by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ who has redeemed me. Now I'm walking in life. I'm walking toward righteousness and holiness. I'm wanting to live right, do right, get it right because I have been redeemed, not because I'm trying to earn my salvation. There is a massive difference between those two. I'm not earning salvation. I have received it. Therefore, I'm walking toward righteousness. The only way to be a child of God is by grace, through faith in Jesus. And when we've taken that step, then we daily renew our dependence on God. Hadn't said this in a long time. I used to say it all the time. I get saved every day. It's not that I lost it. I just come back to that place every morning where I say, God, thank you. 
One more time, I'm putting my life in the hands of you, God, because of your grace, because I put my faith in Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Redeemer, my Sanctifier. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. Because of that, I'm going where I need to be going, doing what I need to be doing. And God, if it wasn't for you, I would make a mess out of this whole thing. Sometimes I kind of make a mess out of it anyway, but you help me get it back. It's all by the grace of God. Doesn't matter how much money's in your bank. Doesn't matter what committees you're on. Doesn't matter who you know or what you've done. Except that you know Jesus Christ. And you know the love of the Father. It's Galatians chapter 4. Pastor Neil talked about it last week. Galatians chapter 4, it starts out with that, that we are children of God. Now, ladies, don't get upset with me, but Paul acts as sons of God, and that's not intended to eliminate females. It's intended to include females to a level that culturally means that you are an heir of God. That's what the culture was at that time. If you don't understand that, just go back to the chapter four and three where Paul talks about in him there is neither male nor female. That's not the point, but Paul is saying we're all at that level of being heirs of God. Somebody just shout over that. We're heirs of God, and he's our father. And I want you to understand this today, that if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. Let me just tell you today, everyone here, God loves you enormously. He loves you with such intensity that each and every day, he sends a sunrise to greet you in the morning and a sunset to kiss us goodnight. He gives us flowers every spring and then paints a vivid and colorful reminder of his love every fall. What a mighty loving God we serve. He wants you to know that every time you talk, he's going to listen. Whenever you're hurting, he'll comfort you. When you're filled with joy, he'll celebrate with you. Even more amazing is when I try to comprehend the fact that God can dwell anywhere in the universe. And he chooses to dwell in me. He chooses to dwell in you. If you are a person who by grace, through faith, has, has accepted Jesus as your Savior. It's a relational walk that grows daily from being, bit, be, being friends and Him being our Father, and it evolves into an eternity of worship and fellowship with God. How awesome is that? Here's what you need to know about God's love. I wrap up with this three things God deals with humans consistently. He doesn't treat one one way and one the other, but when you read through Scripture, one of the key words is everyone. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Aren't you glad he didn't put some kind of restriction on that? Certain height, certain weight, certain ethnicity. It's everyone. God deals with humanity consistently, and it's on the basis of grace. From the beginning, we could not remove the stain of sin 
or get rid of the burden of guilt. But God has given provision that because we are children of grace and our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and guilt is eliminated. Secondly, God deals with us compassionately. God's willingness to deal with us on the basis of grace is the clearest sign of his compassion for us. It's a good thing I'm not God. I wouldn't be that kind or that fair. I would say, well, I want you to prove it first and show me this and do this, and then we'll talk about it. Can I get a witness from a parent in the room? But God says, I love you so much. I'm going to meet you as you are. And because of grace, I'm going to accept you if you will put your life in the hands of Jesus and you will, you will affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Lastly, not only does he deal with us consistently and compassionately, but he deals with us constructively. One of my favorite quotes says this, God loves you so much, he accepts you just like you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. He's working on me. He's working on you. Thanks be to God that because of his grace, that through an expression of faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sins can be forgiven and we can be made righteous. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I want you to stand with me all across the room and bow your heads, if you will, for just a moment. We're going to have a word of prayer and sing a song, and we'll be done in just a few minutes. But I want to take time for this because it's absolutely critical this morning. And I'm going to ask you to respond this way today. In a minute, I'll invite you to come to the front. Someone will pray with you. If you want that, we would encourage you to do that. Some people say, do I have to come to the front to get saved? No, it's not that you have to. You can get saved in your car driving home today. You can get saved tomorrow when you're taking a shower. It can happen anywhere. But there is something valuable about establishing a place for us where we say, I know what happened. I know when I made that commitment. I know when I made that prayer. So I'm going to encourage you in a moment, if you want to do that today, to come to the front. And there'll be people here to pray with you. But right now, I want you to bow your heads all across the room. And I'm going to ask how many will join me today. Whether it's first time, thousandth time, you've been doing it for years, or you've never done it before. How many of you will join me today and say, I want to accept the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that makes me a child of God, and I want to live in that reality. Would you raise your hand with me high all across the room? I pray it will be unanimous that we all say, that's who I am. I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to pray right now. God, I thank you that we are saved by grace, through faith, not of our own efforts so that we don't boast about it. It is the free gift of God. And everyone who believes in Jesus will become a child of God. 
not believing just with our mind, but with our in the entirety of our being, putting our faith and our trust in Him. Lord, I thank you today that you will always welcome us when we come to you, and you will bring us into your family because of your grace as we express our faith in your work. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. If you're glad for the grace of God that saved you, would you just give the Lord praise right now? If you want to clap your hands, if you just want to give him praise from your mouth. I'd like for our prayer team to come and be here in the front. If you would, prayer team, very quickly, come here for just a moment. If you're here today and you need prayer for anything, if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart, let me just make it real clear and strongly encouraging to you. I encourage you to come and let someone pray with you. If you got anything going on at all, don't think, well, it's okay, I got it handled. What a great opportunity to let someone join you with their faith and believe for God to meet your need. If you right now raise your hand and you say, that was a new thing for me or I hadn't done that in a long time and I want help, we have material for you before you leave today that ta talks about beginning your relationship with God. But I would love for you to come right now and let someone pray with you. Whatever need is in your life, if there's confusion, if there's doubt, if there's fear, if, if there's finances, physical things, whatever it is, we want to be a family and pray with you right now and believe for God just to meet your need. Would you sing this song together? Lift your hands and worship to God and join Pastor Russell as we worship God for being his child today.